Amos 2, 6 through 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Thank you, Leah, for the reading of the word. And thank you, Anna, for sharing what you guys have been doing with uh, the refugee family there in the west side. The passage today is a, is a difficult one. This, this topic is a difficult one. Amos is difficult in general. If you've been with us for a while, you've been going through the Minor Prophets here, going through the book of Amos. The, the Minor Prophets are really a difficult passages, areas of Scripture to go through because of sometimes this very stark and vivid imagery and just harsh denunciations. Last week, if you were here, we, we heard the Lord's just sharp rebuke of Israel and their religion and how their, the hypocrisy of their religious festivals and feasts, while at the same time the not taking care of the poor and the disadvantaged, how just horrible this is in, in the eyes of God. And then this week we see this picture of Israel again, very similar and, and that's what the minor prophets do. They often repeat this imagery again and again. And you have this problem of religion throughout the country. And, and you look at this, the charges that are being leveled against Israel in this passage, right? The first charge is that they're selling the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor and they turn aside the way of the, flick, of the afflicted. It's very much what we would think of as injustice, there's greed and there's selfishness and they are taking money from the poor. They are turning away from those who need their help. They are putting barriers, in fact. They're keeping people hurt and marginalized and afflicted so that they can gain. And so the religious elites of society are getting richer while the poor is getting poorer. I mean, it's, it's what we would think of as this really systemic issue. But then you also have this this other picture of a man and his father, or a father and, and his son, go into the same woman. This sexual immorality is in the same breath as taking advantage of the poor. You have this abuse, this, what most commentators would argue is, we're looking at is prostitution, where a, a, husband, a father and his son are sharing a prostitute together. Like, what is, what's happening within the people? And also this laying down on garments taken in pledge, the drinking wine, they're looking to their own fulfillment, their own enjoyments, uh, just what we would think of as immoral behavior of sex and drunkenness, this, these moral character issues. Outwardly religious, again, and this is the kind of denunciation broadly of Israel, outwardly religious, inwardly far from God and have turned from God. Um, this, the hypocrisy of the nation. They say the right things, they do the right things, but in their hearts they have turned to other idols, to other gods. They don't worship the Lord. And the fruit of it you see coming out. The fruit of their distrust of God and in of themselves, you have a love of money and comfort at the expense of the poor, along with avoiding the afflicted that are in need. A lot like George is preaching about here out of Amos about that moral proximity of this 
moving away from the people who actually need our help, I avoid them and I insulate myself so they're not in that immediate sphere. So I'm now free to not help them. But you have this, this, the religious elites loving money and comfort at the expense of others, injustice and isolation. But then at the same hand, while they're doing these outwardly unjust actions, there's also sexual immorality, laziness, and drunkenness as well. What would we cons- you know, consider moral failure? And what's so amazing about this Amos passage, or what we see within Amos, is really just how seamless these areas are connected. The connection that they can make between injustice on a very broad level, the rich taking advantage of the poor, the elites trampling the needy for their own comforts and gain. I mean, that is straight up systematic injustice that the world cries out against. You know, the 1% that are living off of. I mean, that, yeah, we get this. Our society gets this. Everyone gets this. This is just wrong. But then what the prophet can do in the same breath, call out sexual immorality. Whoa, what's the connection? (laughs) How are you connecting sex with a prostitute with trampling the poor? How are these connected? Why do they go hand in hand? Because we have a very difficult time looking at both of those things at the same time. We want to talk about sexual immorality. Let's talk about sexual immorality. But how is sexual immorality connected to broader levels of injustice across the society? But according to Amos, according to the Bible, both of these issues flow out of the same problem. This fundamental issue within all of us, this self-centeredness and selfishness that's flowing through Israel, and we see the fruits of it in their actions and their behavior. We see it in their hearts, and we see it around us today as well. Tim Keller has this great book, Generous Justice. Some of us in our house church, you know, have been working through this book. And I'd really recommend it if you've never read, if you've never read it. it. It's helpful. And, you know, he, does, he, he looks at this passage in Amos as well and, and kind of points out that while Amos and the prophets are able to connect those two things, people's morality with injustice, right? The, the prophets always connect them. Jesus always connects them. He makes this the observation, right? We don't need much help making this observation, that today in our culture and context, we have a very difficult time making that connection. We can't seem to talk and look at both. But rather, we live in a very divided world, a very divided culture. If you're paying attention to the news, you know this. I mean, you know, the gun issues will instantly divide everybody. You know, you thought we were divided already about politics. Now we're getting divided around school shootings. And you're just like, what is going on? And we're just so not far from the situation in Israel where you do have this hypocrisy and this avoidance of justice and all of these things, but also a negligent looking at people's personal morality. Because what's happened, especially in the church, and again, I don't know how churched you are. I'm, I'm very churched, right? <laughs> growing up in church my whole life. But if you know much about the church, you see this happen all the time where we, and as society, we do it too, where we pick the set of sins that we're going to emphasize. And that's going to be our thing that we're really going to harp on and we're really going to push. And so each group, each political entity, if you look at liberal conservative, they do the same thing, right? Pick their particular group of sins that they think of as more important than any others and push for those. And churches do the same thing, where you find your particular issues, your particular sins, and you, you push those. And for many, personal morality is it. 
right? That's the biggest issue in our world, in our culture. I remember growing up with that instilled in me that the biggest problem in the world today is the lack of morals. You look at our culture and you say, boy, we have lost the moral compass. No one knows right from wrong anymore. That's our problem. The biggest issue today is that we just don't have moral fortitude. People just aren't doing what is right. They're not following through on God's laws and commands. They're not doing what they, we, they should be. And if people were just more morally upright, if people just did what is right, this world would be a better place. Right? That's true. There's a lot of truth to that. The other side, right, the other side of society, culture, church, looks at the world and says, no, 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 the biggest problem is just how unfair this world is. Don't you get it? You can harp on as much personal morality as you want, but that's not going to take care of just the unjust system and how unfair. Some people just don't have a chance. They're not being loved. They're not being taken care of. You can get them to believe in God, but that doesn't help with the unfairness that's in existence. The problem in this world is that not everybody has the same opportunity. Not everybody has the same shake. We all need to have this, this love and acceptance. We need to work for justice. And so anything that goes against that is a, is a threat and a problem in our society. And it's almost impossible, right? It's almost impossible to see both sides. Personal morality and systemic injustice at the same time. Or to have a conversation about both. If you try to look at both at the same time, it's, it's almost impossible to do. But it's what the Scripture does continuously. It's what Jesus does continuously in his ministry. It's what Paul calls the church to do continuously. There's this care for the poor, for the refugee, for the immigrant, for the widow, for the needy, and a call to individual holiness, to morality. Both are, both are important. And we can see within ourselves and within our society the fruit of this. You know, if you look at just what's morality without a focus on justice, right? If you look at that one, morality without justice, we look at, again, the biggest problem of societies, the biggest problem in the church, the biggest problem in our neighborhood, right? If you approach it from the standpoint, you say, the biggest problem is just moral failure, right? Boy, people are having too much premarital sex, they're getting drunk, abusing drugs. If we could just stop this, we, so the solution to that problem, right? If that's the problem, moral failure in our society, well, the solution is pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward. And the church has tried this for a long time, right? As has Israel. All right, confess your sin. Get in an accountability group. Join a community where people are going to push you and help you. But the fruit that emerges very quickly, and all of us know this, right, is an actually, instead of overcoming sin, a hiding of sin, because now I'm supposed to be in a group of people who are holding me accountable, and I can't show my sin anymore, because I need to keep it very, very hidden. I'll, I'll publicly denounce that sin, but inwardly, I'm going to hold on to it. And also a retreating from culture or society, a protecting Right, so again, if the problem is moral failure, I need to protect my family from those failures. I need to protect my people from 
those sins, I need to protect them from the bad influences that are going to lead them down that same path. So we become insular, we become isolated, we become right, really just talking a lot about sin and how sin is wrong, but under the surface, participating in those sins at an incredibly high rate, right, which is the church today. If you know just the, the rates of pastors that are addicted to pornography, I mean, it's through the roofs, or, or just the scandals, right, of, you know, pastors, this was, what was this big, maybe like 10 years ago, right, evangelical pastors who are denouncing homosexuality who then get caught in a homosexual scandal of their own. I mean, this is, this is religion. This is what we do. If you emphasize just sin and moral failure and just emphasizing, 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 it leads to this, and it's a, and it leads to a lack of love for sinners, Right, just thinking of that statement, right, of, that was really popular, at least when I was growing up as a Christian, right? I, I, I hate sin, but I love the sinner. That doesn't really feel that way to someone who is that sinner. <laughs> Where you're like, oh, I love you. You're a sinner. I just hate your sin. It's not our genuine. They, what they're hearing is, I love you, but I'd love you more if you could just stop that sin. That doesn't, it doesn't work. And it's a loss of credibility. The church has just lost so much credibility in the world as we push personal morality while turn a blind eye to the systemic injustices that are all around us, to the unfairness. And a love of personal character and a blind eye to these sins. You know, and it really dovetailed well with evangelicalism's love of the celebrity. You know, and all that mattered was that somebody was an evangelical Christian or someone was a Christian he kind of gave them a pass with the rest of their life because you're just so excited that this, you know, celebrity was a Christian. They're one of the Baldwin brothers, right? I forget which one. You know, it's a Christian. You're like, oh, this is so exciting. Yeah. Well, what about their life? What about anything else? We're not worried about that. You're worried about people renouncing their sins, coming to Jesus, just at this personal salvation. It, it just ultimately becomes very, very hollow, a hypocrisy. Now, there's fruit, though, as well, negative fruit of an emphasis on justice without an emphasis on morality. I mean, some of you have come out of that world or have walking in that world as well, where there's a huge emphasis placed on justice and social justice and all of those things, but not a huge emphasis put on sin, where sin isn't talked about or dealt with and personal morality isn't, where you put an emphasis on loving everyone and meeting needs, building people up, right? Because if you look at this world and the culture, and this is this is really a dominant narrative that the problem, the biggest problem of our world is a lack of love. People just aren't loved enough. Why is there crime? Why is there all these issues? Why is there the drug abuse? People just aren't loved. They need, they need love and they need acceptance. They need to be built up. So what do you do? To do that, you love everyone. You accept everybody. I need to love you. I need to accept you. I need to build you up. I need to really care about you. I need to remove any obstacle that could possibly hinder us in our relationship and your fellowship with us. I mean, if, if statements of faith get in the way, let's get rid of those. I mean, I'm, if sin gets—I mean, I can't call sin a sin. Or I, I can't criticize. Instead of criticizing people, I need to build them. I need to encourage them. And there's some real truth to that, right? There is a lack of love and acceptance in, in this world. But the fruit of just love without— correction of just justice without an emphasis on morality, you have a strong presence among the disenfranchised, right? You do. You have churches that have a strong presence in poor communities, immigrant communities, refugee communities, all these places, absolutely. But without addressing 
individual lives, choices, desires, hopes, failures, they're not taking the sin seriously in those communities. And so the fruit of it is not long-term change of people. And many of you have experienced this in the nonprofit world, treatment world. You know, you can help, but if there's not going to be a systemic change on the inside, where is this going to go? And right back into that cycle, we're not breaking free of those cycles of injustice and the need for help. And you also have within this world, if it's just an emphasis on justice, but without an emphasis on morality, on truth, you do have a lack of sustaining energy without a powerful reason to love everyone. Right? And it, you see that in society today where there's a great call to love and accept everyone, but without a great reason why should I love and accept everyone? What is my basis for this? What is going to sustain me in these efforts in this community with them? If it's just a feeling of I ought to or guilt out of my own privilege, it doesn't last. And so again, you have that just constant turnover in those nonprofit sectors that are doing justice and doing work. It's nothing, very little sustaining. So what does the world actually need from us? Right, what is the hope that Christ is calling us to, that, that Israel was called to and that they have failed in? What, what we, they need from us is a message of hope for this world that addresses right, both. And this is what the gospel gives us, what scripture has been giving them. This is the law, the Pentateuch that Israel took with them into the, into the exodus, into the land. This is how they were supposed to live as a people. They were supposed to do both. They have a, they're supposed to care for individual people. Their lives, their choices, their desires, their hopes, their failures. Right, that the gospel gives us, the message of the scripture gives us a real hope for change. Right? People are desperate for that. Right? Many of you have gotten to that place where you, I need to change. Yeah, there's systemic issues all around me, but I need, <laughs> I have hit rock, but I need hope that I don't have to live like this anymore. Something's got to change. What could ever change me? There's got to be something that can give my life purpose and meaning. I want to give up that darkness. I want to walk in the light. I want to turn away from I, right? And that's what the gospel tells us. It gives us that hope. Scripture tells us these things. But then there's also a hope, but it can't be just part of it. It's got to be this whole cloth. It can't just be personal morality, a personal story you can change. But there also has to be hope for this world. Hope for the world that could address the systemic injustices of it and a call for judgment against the powerful and the elite, for those who take advantage of the poor and the wicked. There has to be that real love and the meeting of needs of people. Israel was called to do both. They were called to worship the Lord with all of their heart. They were called to walk in his ways. They were called to trust him. And they were called to take care of the poor and the immigrant, the refugee, the widow, everyone around them. They're called to do both. They didn't, right? They picked, they picked religion and they gave up their own personal identity, this personal relationship with God. They weren't, they outwardly doing what is right, inwardly far from the Lord. And the fruit of that you see in their lack of personal righteousness and sin. How do we do this? How does Israel come back from this? What hope is there for the world today? What hope is there for the church? I mean, many of us 
have taken a very negative view of church, are just kind of coming back into church. Others of us have been in church our whole lives, but we still have a negative view of the church. You're still here, though. You're like, oh, I, don't, I just don't know what the church could even do today. I don't know what we could even offer anybody. Right? What, is, what could we do as a church? What, what are we called to? How can we offer a message of hope to individuals and to communities and to society? Because all of us fall into those two camps, right, we were talking about. Right, for some of us, right, we fall into that camp that we're a little bit indifferent. All of us can be indifferent, but we're a little indifferent and judgmental of someone. For some of us, we're a little indifferent to the poor, a little cold to the poor, a little judgmental of the poor. We say, look, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm, it's, I'm sorry that you're in that position. But aren't there programs for you? Can't you get your life together? Look, I did. I know what it's like. You know, they, right, we look, at, we look at when we hear stories about the racial injustices of the world, or you hear these things, you, say, you know, this is all overblown. This isn't that bad. This isn't as big of a deal as, we, as everyone's making it out to be. Right? Life is fine. Society's going on just fine. Everything, everything. Look, what needs to happen is individuals need to just pull their, get their act together and start working on these things. You know, that's in a lot of our hearts. <laughs> and we feel guilty about that. Right? Chances are, if you're in the church, you don't want it. You, you feel indifferent towards the poor. You're a little judgmental and skeptical of, of the immigrant, of the widow, of those. But you know you shouldn't be. And it probably feeds a little bit of guilt, which then feeds into, all right, I'm going to work on, I'm going to do things for them. But you still have the same issue, underlying issue, the judgmentalness, the hardness, the coldness to somebody who is in a position of need. For others of us, we may find ourselves a little cold and indifferent and judgmental towards the rich, to the powerful, to the religious, <laughs> to, the, to the dominant groups. And be like, look, come on. You hypocrites. Why don't you just do something? What's wrong with all these people? Right? What's wrong with these people that all live in their suburbs and have their big houses and their big churches? Man, they got to get off of their butts and start living in this world. Not wanting to really take an honest look at yourself and saying, you know, you're the privileged elite too. (laughs) You may not have as big of a house, but you also have a house. You may not have quite as big of a paycheck, but you still have a paycheck. Right? This, it's easy to find ourselves looking at the other with smugness, self-assurance, and judging. Right? This is our political culture. Both sides emphasizing their particular sins that they think are the worst, looking at the other and saying, boy, I just wish they would wake up and realize what's wrong and see things, right, from my point of view. Not realizing, you know, I've got this, I've got an issue that I need to come to. Because the reality is, the reason why these exist in our church, in our hearts, in our culture, is because, well, we all have the same heart, and we all have the same fundamental problem and issue. It all stems from this same place of being in control, of feeling like you've earned something, feeling like you have something that you did pull yourself up by the bootstraps 
and that you did work hard and you do own things and this life that you have is yours and I do have my, my money is mine, my house is mine, my life is mine. That's the problem. Right, like George has talked about with that circle of generosity, if you think that your things are yours, you will have a coldness and an indifferent heart towards others who don't have what you have, who could be threatening what you have, or who have more than you have. And you will look at them with indifference, coldness, wishing that they did something different with their resources. Why don't they do something? Why don't they get to where I am? Or why don't they give away more of what they have? You will have this heart that is very self-centered. Tim Keller in that book, Generous Justice, he gives this, this picture of, you know, like Jesus in the, good, in the um, Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about how blessed it is to be poor in spirit, to realize you have nothing, to be ultimately just poor, right? I have nothing. I have no leg to stand on, because that's the gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is that I have nothing. I have nothing of my own, Jesus lived the life that I was actually supposed to live, but he died for the life that I actually live, and he gives me this life that I could never attain, and I don't deserve. Every blessing, every goodness in my life that he has given me is not mine, and I didn't deserve it. I don't own it. It's not mine. It's his. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You're poor. I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing except for what God has given me. But what Tim argues is that most in the church— are not poor in spirit, but rather are middle class in spirit. This kind of place where you say, yeah, yeah, I know I can't earn my salvation. Yeah, 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 I know that. I know I could never earn my salvation. But the, my, these other things in my life are mine. I earned these. I earned this family. I earned this home. I earned this stuff. Like, this is mine. And I do have control of it. And if I follow God's will, he will bless me. He's supposed to. I, I, know he, I know I can't save myself. I'm not trying to save myself with my works. You know, like uh, Jake asked that question last week about like, what's the relation of faith and works and all these types of things? Well, if you're, poor, if you're middle class in spirit, you're like, oh, I know I'm not saved by my works, but I'm still going to work trusting that God is going to bless me. But you're still trying to get from God a blessing. You're still working for things. So Tim describes this middle class in spirit. If you're middle class in spirit, you're still going to hold that indifference. You're still going to have that coldness. You're still going to possess your stuff. And you're going to look upon, when God takes it away from you, <laughs> you're going to look at God with some anger and disappointment. Or when there are those around you who threaten those things, like the poor, you're not going to be as quick to give. So what is the possible thing that could change that? We need to have changed hearts. This is what Israel's need was. And we're going to see it through Amos, Joel, Habakkuk, the Minor Prophets. Ezekiel clearly gives Jeremiah, listen, Israel, you're going to need a new heart. This has nothing to do with your actions. This is not, you need to institute a better program for dealing with your sin as a nation. This is not, you need to institute a better program for helping the poor. No, they're doing those things. And the fruit of it is poison. They're going to need new hearts. We're going to need new hearts. My problem is not that I got to just get rid of my sin. That's not my biggest problem in my life is my sin. My biggest problem is not the injustice and unfairness around me. I don't just have to go help the poor. That's not the solution. What this world needs, right, is 
Jesus. What the world needs is the hope of the gospel, of a newness, this radical, transforming good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have been saved by grace, not by works. Because every other religion, philosophy, system works with that other, works with the operation of if you live a good life, you will be blessed. If you do something, you will be good. If you do this, then you will get a result. That's, that's what everyone lives, that hope to be justified, that hopefully my life will be good enough. If I can just get sober enough, my family will love me. If I can just overcome this sin, then God will finally be pleased with me. If I can just feed the poor and the needy, then, right, if I can just. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, right, I've done everything for you. I've done everything for you. By grace, you have been saved. And I give to you something you could never earn. This entire life, your breath, your existence, these people in your life, everything is a gift from God that has been given to you. You don't deserve it. Nothing. You don't deserve anything. And he freely gives us more and more and blesses us more and more and more. Nothing is yours. Everything is a gift from God that we didn't earn and we can't lose. Right? Imagine if you lived like that. Imagine if Israel lived like this. Right? Now, now the commands, the law of God start to make a little more sense. If this was true, if all of my needs have been met and will be met and nothing could ever be taken from me, if I have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear, if I could live a life without any fear, I would live a changed life. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a couple of things. For those of you who have a hard time with these religious people in society, those who are harping on individual sins, which is a lot of us, have a hard time with those people. Oh, these prudes, these Puritans out there who are just trying to get people to stop having premarital sex. Come on. Well, you have a low view of God's law. Right? You really do. Jesus died because of his law, because of that law. Who are you to say it doesn't matter that someone's having premarital sex? Who are you to say that drunkenness is not a big deal? Jesus died because of that. He died because we all fail at that moral law, and he rectified it. Who are you to throw it away, dismiss it, and say it doesn't matter what people do? You can't say that. You can't say that in the face of Jesus dying for the law, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ makes us have a much higher view of God's law. I have to take sin seriously. Who am I? If my, if my Lord and Savior died because of these things, who am I to just, just throw them away and say it's not a big deal? Look, pornography, all right, everybody's got that. What's the big deal? No, it's big, it was a big enough deal for Jesus to die for. It's got to be a big enough deal for me. If you have a coldness and indifference towards the poor, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, gives us a much, oh, the light. I better go walk over there. The gospel gives us a much higher view of the poor as well. There it is. There it is. Because, so Jesus, the, it gives me a higher view of the law because of Jesus' death. But Jesus' death, I, he also... Because I see his death and I see who he identified with in his life, his whole life, he identified with the poor and the weak and the marginalized, and he brought them into his family. 
how can I now look at anyone without sympathy, without love? And because of this, right, because this is what holds us back from this often in society is this idea of like, look, I don't know what it's like. I'm a white male, privileged. I don't know what it's like. I can't relate. I can relate. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can. I know what it's like to be on the outside. I know what it's like to be an alien and a foreigner. I know what it's like to be without hope in the world. I know what it's like to be left on the road bloody and beaten like the Good Samaritan. I know this. Spiritually, I know this. And I can show compassion and sympathy and care for that the gospel of Jesus Christ actually, right, I do have now the ability to feel the pain and the heartache of those on the margins of society. I can. Now, I don't know all of the physical needs and all those things, but at least my heart can be one with them. I see myself in them because I know what that's like, and that's who I am too. That relationship between faith and works, this relationship with it all, we're saved by faith alone. I mean, it is grace. By grace we have been saved. But just like Paul and James and the rest of the Bible kind of demonstrates, but not by a faith that remains alone. True faith will always produce this changed life. It just does. We need to be confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will drift. We will always drift. We will emphasize one group of sins over another. I will drift back into trying to earn my salvation or those types of things. I need to be daily confronted, often confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that it centers us back as a church, as a body, as a people. Reminding us of who we are and who everyone else is in Christ and it melts our heart. So if this is you, I mean, if you're, if you're struggling with these things, if, if, if you hear these talks of justice with a little bit of skepticism, you say, I think, I think this racism discussion is a little overblown. I think the needs of those around, I don't know how real this all is. Let your heart be softened by seeing who Jesus died for, by seeing who you really are in Jesus Christ. If you struggle with being judgmental of the religious and the elites and the rich in society, let your heart be broken by the gospel of Jesus Christ and see them for who they are, loved by Christ and reconciled through Jesus Christ. If you have a low view of sin, look at Jesus and start taking your sin seriously. Not to try to earn salvation, but because he took care of your sin. So how can I take it so lightly? And if you don't take your neighbor seriously, right, look at Christ and see how he died for your neighbor. How can I not love and care for my neighbor?